Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for letting us be part of your day. Here's what we're going to be talking about. We have some uh, dairy industry uh, news to talk about, some concerns. Big change. Uh, we talked about this yesterday. Uh, the FDA administrator, the FDA uh, head, uh, Scott Gottlieb, announces he's resigning. Where does that leave some issues like uh, labeling of dairy products and uh, those imitation dairy products? Where does that leave all this? We're going to talk about that with Alan Burga with the National Milk Producers Federation. Ethan Lane will join us from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. We're going to talk about the Fish and Wildlife Service's uh, proposed plan to take gray wolves off of the endangered species list, something that the uh, cattlemen are happy about, but environmental groups are not, and we'll look at that issue. And we'll be talking with the CEO of the National Sorghum Producers, Tim Lust, will be joining us to look at the priorities for sorghum growers for this coming year. So all that coming up on today's program, but we're going to start it off with the news, joined by Todd Neely from DTN. Hi, Todd. How are you? Hi, good, Mike. Hey, you were at the uh, WOTUS, Waters of the U.S., hearing last week. Uh, how did that go? Well, you know, I thought it was interesting, Mike. There, uh, you know, as we've been talking about previously, you know, we're, I think we're going to see legal action on, on this new rule that's been, uh, been proposed. It's in a 60-day public comment period right now. But um, listening to the comments at that hearing, I think we got a pretty good idea where the lines are being drawn. Um I think what you're going to see in you know, any future legal challenges, they're going to center a lot on um, some of these isolated wetlands that are basically taken out of um, uh, Clean Water Act jurisdiction. Um, in this new rule, um, a wetland's only uh, in if it's adjacent to a navigable water. Um, and so the, many of the comments at, at, this, uh, at this hearing centered on that issue that uh, EPA seems to be taking uh, wetlands and even some tributaries out of jurisdiction, which um, the argument's been made that they, they really are important in terms of filtering water uh, and those sorts of things. And so I think, I think you're going to see that bit of a challenge at some point. And I also think that, uh, you know, as we, as we get farther into these public comment period, this public comment period, we're going to see more about, um, you know, what the next, what the next phases of this thing is going to be in terms of legal challenges. I'm, I'm assuming, you know, with 60 days, there's a limited time, obviously, um, you know, for the public to get out there and say much about it. Uh, and we may even see, um, you know, an extension of that public comment period. But for now, uh, just in that hearing, that's some of the things I kind of picked up on that, um, you know, there, there is going to be a legal challenge, and I think it's going to center on wetlands. Yeah, we kind of knew all along that uh, this thing was headed for the courts, so we'll see how that plays out. Right. Meanwhile, an interesting situation in Ohio with Lake Erie. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, the city of Toledo had passed a uh, what they call a Bill of Rights for, for the lake. Um, just a little bit of history on this. Back in 2014, there was a toxic algae bloom in Lake Erie. Uh, the city of Toledo had drinking water supplies uh, contaminated. And so we're talking about a three- or four-day period where uh, residents were really concerned. They were having to boil water and different things to, to get through that, that time. Uh, well, since then, the Toledo citizens passed a, a measure, a ballot measure, uh, to give Lake Erie Bill of Rights. And what this means is that a citizen can basically sue on behalf of the lake. Um, 
And so, as you know, around Lake Erie, we're talking about a four or five state region, uh, parts of Canada as well, uh, where farmers could be subject um, to lawsuits, primarily centered on the use of the fertilizer. Um, you know, because when you look at the history of, of Lake Erie and, and the problems they've had, uh, much has been made about um, agriculture runoff. And so I think um, we had a farmer in Ohio, his name is uh, Mark Drews, who filed this lawsuit on behalf of, of farmers in the region. We're talking about thousands of farmers. Um, where it goes from here, I'm not sure, but um, a lot of people leading up to this city ballot vote um, had said that this, this rule is probably not constitutional, that it probably won't hold up, but I guess that's what we're going to find out more legal issues meanwhile in north carolina there are some uh, hog farm nuisance cases down there tell us about those yeah you know there was uh i believe it was around 500 500 different residents uh in the eastern part of the state which is heavily hog hog producing area um had filed nuisance claims uh in district court uh, dealing with odor, dealing with truck noise, all those things that go with agriculture, you know, the everyday stuff. Um, and, and there was a total of, I believe, three trials and a total of $500 million awarded in damages. Um, since then, a uh, couple of national ad groups and a couple of state ad groups filed a lawsuit, an appeal in the 4th District in Richmond, Virginia, uh, saying that these types of punitive damages are are highly destructive to agriculture, you know, um, pretty much every segment of the industry these days is facing uh, economic challenges. Um, and so this basically is challenging one of those cases, which involved uh, Kinlaw Farms, which is in Bladen County, North Carolina. Uh, that particular situation, $50 million was awarded. A court later knocked that down to just over $3 million. Uh, but I think the, cases, uh, the case that's going to be made in this appeal is basically centered on all of those cases, whether... Uh, you know, you know. Typically, if you have a, if you have an award granted like this by a court, uh, it'd be very difficult for many of these farms to uh, to keep an operation if uh, they have to comply with those uh, with those regulations. Ag in the courtroom, as I call it. We're gonna we're gonna talk a lot about <laughs> uh, legal issues this year, aren't we? I think so, Mike. It seems like that's more every year. Hey, real quick, uh, I think the FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb's resignation sure caught a lot of people by surprise, didn't it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, I, FDA is uh, involved in a lot of things that, you know, we really don't talk a lot about in agriculture, what FDA does. But, uh, yeah, anytime you have a change at the top, uh, it certainly puts a lot of things in flux. Um, you know, I guess the question is going to be how involved was the administration on FDA issues and how, you know, how engaged they are. Because we know with, uh, with EPA, um, the Trump administration seems to be highly engaged in what's going on there. Uh, I guess we're going to find out um, whoever's nominated to, to lead the agency going forward. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if, um, you know, if just like I said, how involved uh, the administration is on a lot of the FDA issues. Yeah, issues like oversight of uh, cell-based yeah. uh, meat products now and the labeling of imitation dairy products. These are some issues we'll be watching to see uh, uh, the new commissioner, how he's going to handle these things, he or she. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And, I, you know, I, I, would, I would imagine this position will be filled relatively quickly, although we haven't really heard much about what's next. So. Yep. 
Yeah, it just seemed to catch everyone by surprise, that's for sure. All right, Todd, thanks a lot, yeah. and uh, we're, we'll call you a legal reporter here before long. You know, you'll be yeah, like court, court, court uh, coverage here. Okay, thanks, Todd. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Todd Neely with DTN. Yeah, a lot of big legal cases uh, to watch this year, that's for sure, concerning uh, agriculture, agriculture-related. Well, we'll talk about that change at FDA, the surprise resignation by Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. How does that impact an issue like dairy product labeling? We'll talk about that with Alan Burga with the National Milk Producers Federation. That's coming up next here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Powerful, effective, proven, tough, consistent, reliable. A lot of adjectives can describe a herbicide's weed control, but one only applies to Liberty Herbicide. Superior. Liberty Herbicide has no known resistance in row crops, more convenient application flexibility, and excellent control of key weeds, all backed by the Liberty Weed Control Guarantee. Learn more at liberty.basf.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, the surprise resignation by FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb has many wondering, uh, where does that leave uh, the agency and this administration's uh, policies on a lot of uh, food issues? People wondering if um, that they will be able to continue some of the things they've been working on when it comes to nutrition and food safety. Now, Gottlieb himself says uh, he's not worried. He thinks that that will continue to be a, a priority and a push for the administration. He doesn't see things changing. But we have to wait and see who the, the next person will be to head up FDA and uh, what direction uh, they they want to go. Uh, we have talked about this before. There are some issues, uh, especially for agriculture, we've been watching closely that uh, this would impact uh, when it comes to oversight of uh, some of this new technology, like the the lab meat or cell-based meat products, if you will, and also an issue we've talked about quite a bit, and that is uh, dairy product labeling, and more, maybe even more specifically, the imitation dairy product labeling. Uh, let's talk about that with Alan Burga with the National Milk Producers Federation. Alan, thank you for joining us. Obviously, no one knows uh, who's going to be the next commissioner at FDA, uh, but it will be interesting to see uh, because we, you were just getting some momentum from FDA, it seemed like, on this labeling issue. Well, and that's exactly the point. I mean, you're not going to have an idea of whether this is up or down, you know, for proper labeling of plant-based beverages um, until you know who the new person is. Uh, you can certainly say that Scott Gottlieb had more attention paid to food issues than maybe some commissioners have had, and we always appreciated that. You know, that we felt that he gave us a fair hearing, um, showed a true interest in the issues, and, of course, appreciated working with Scott Gottlieb. He also, frankly, you know, gave the, the dairy industry and consumers an opportunity they haven't had in four decades by really starting to take a look seriously at this issue of the proliferating you know, plant-based imitation products and, and, the, and proper use of dairy terms. Uh, that said, you know, when you're National Milk, when we've been looking at this issue for four decades, you're, 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 you have to have in your mindset that these things can take a long time, and, and you have to assume that this is going to last beyond any one administrator or one administration. 
So, so it's going to have a lot to do with, with who's coming up next, uh, but this was a long-term issue. And the great thing about Scott Gottlieb's contribution is, is that, you know, because he said that almonds don't lactate and because he paid attention, this now really is in the public space like it wasn't before. And I think it's going to be hard for any successor to just ignore this or put it on the shelf. I mean, we're certainly going to work to make sure that that successor doesn't do that. So we wait to see who will be the next commissioner. Meanwhile, you've had the, the public comment period on this issue. Does everything get put on hold while we wait to see who the next commissioner will be? Well, you know, it's interesting because the, the tracking of comments is still trickling in, and that's now over 14,000 comments received. We also filed a citizen petition um, outlining a roadmap for an FDA solution to this issue last month. That has had a docket open, so that's going to be open until August I mean, the, the issue is still very much live. The thing with our FDA rulemaking and policies is, is that there's always the option for them to do nothing. And that's what, you know, National Milk saw as a response for the last 40 years. Scott Gottlieb got the ball rolling. And, and remember, you know, principles of basic physics. That which is at rest stays at rest. That's, that's, that which is in motion stays in motion. This is something that is in motion, and we think we can keep it staying in motion for the benefit of consumers. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. How do you keep that in motion while there's seemingly, at least at the top, some limbo here right now while we wait? Now, there's speculation that the administration, uh, that the president will move quickly on on filling this post, uh, but we know how things move sometimes in Washington on these types of things. So uh, how do you keep the momentum going, you think? Well, you know, again, we have our citizen petition out. Um, this issue does not go away. We see issue movement in the marketplace as some companies decide to go, you know, with, with improper imitation to dairy terms, and, and other companies do the right thing. So you follow that. There's a lot going on, even though you may not have an administrator. You know, there's still people at the FDA. They still have telephones. They still ring. You know, we can talk to people about the pressure. And whenevertably there is another nomination, you make the issue of, of dairy labeling part of the confirmation process. You make sure that it's on people's minds so that you get a position that at least this is going to be looked at by a new commissioner. And once they're on record saying that, then you hold them accountable um, and you get this done. We're talking with Alan Bjerga with the National Milk Producers Federation Alan, I've seen some comments from uh, some of the people in these uh, imitation, these plant-based uh, products, uh, saying that uh, you know they think they have the right to use the terms dairy or or milk. Uh, so the the battle lines have certainly been drawn. What have you taken from the public comment period on this? Well, when you take a look at the public comment period, and, and frankly, the plant-based advocates had more comments on their side um, than people who were standing up for consumer transparency. But when you looked at the quality of the comments, a lot of it was postcard, off-point. You know, uh, folks gymmed up the, the AstroTurf and got people to send things that weren't pertinent. You know, on our side, we had groups like the American Academy of Pediatricians. You know, we had pediatric gastrointestinal health folks talking about, you know, their evidence and, and they're showing that parents actually make questionable nutrition decisions for their kids based on their lack of understanding of nutritional content of plant-based beverages. You know, there are a lot of people bringing up concerns about First Amendment. Um, our roadmap very much shows how what we're asking for in terms of labeling as imitation or alternative or substitute falls well within regulations on commercial speech. I mean, we wouldn't be pushing for something that wasn't well-grounded in case law. We believe we have a solution that does that. 
Um, and then other than that, you know, you just see people, it, it, it sort of makes your own case when you see some of the comments and some of the misinformation that's behind those comments. Um, people saying that there's no confusion when clearly they are evidencing confusion. We feel like the comments overall really helped our case um, and certainly, you know, welcome the FDA's review. And if they got any questions for us, our lines are open. I was going to say, how do you prove that people are confused or being misled by, by this labeling issue? Well, one of it, you know, the issue issues was, was actually done by a survey financed by people who were opposed to our position. You know, one of the straw man arguments you see put up is, oh, the dairy folks, they just want you to think that consumers are dumb. You know, they think that people think there's dairy, milk, and almond beverage, for example. Well, you know, if you take a look at this survey that was supposed to dispel that, what they actually found was about one in four consumers actually really didn't know whether there was cow's milk in these beverages or not. And, and that's not even our point. I mean, our point is nutritional equivalency. Um, and some of the surveys that we were working on, you know, with, through, through Dairy Management, Inc., and, and commissioned by reputable firms like Ipsos, um, show that there are a lot of folks who have some incorrect con- assumptions as far as what the relative nutritional merits are of a plant-based beverage versus a dairy-based beverage. Um, and, and, you know, when you look at that survey data, you can paint a clear picture. Now, you add to that the anecdotal evidence you get from, you know, very respected medical associations who, frankly, we weren't ginning up their comments. You know, these are folks acting independently on their own because they care about this issue showing that, hey, we have parents who are bringing malnourished kids into hospitals because they're feeding them vegan diets that are nutritionally inferior. Um, it's real. It's, it, this is not an industry ploy. This is not some move by a, somebody who's trying to silence their opposition. We have no issue with these, with these products being in the marketplace. What we're asking for is marketplace fairness and transparency and a better environment for the consumer so they can make well-informed choices. Yeah, and, and the most common sense uh, response to it is if there wasn't a value in dairy and milk as, as part of your label, as your name, you wouldn't be using it. Obviously, they see there is a value and that they're wanting to cash in on. Well, it is an interesting paradox when you think about it, um, especially when you look in the vegan community, you know. And folks who, frankly, are t- you know, they'll talk about the horrors of animal agriculture. Um, these are folks who simply don't want animal agriculture to exist. So on the one hand, it's, you know, you, your products are awful. We want no association with you. We would like you to go away. And by the way, can we call the product milk? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they want to use your name, but and, but put down your industry at the same time. All right, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. We'll wait to see who that next FDA commissioner is and uh, what direction uh, they choose to go. Alan, as always, thank you for the update. Thank you. Alan Bjurga with the National Milk Producers Federation. All right, coming up next, uh, a, a controversial topic, too, that's been going on for some time. Uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service plans to remove the gray wolf from the endangered species list. And ranchers and uh, uh, many are, are praising this move, saying it's long overdue. But uh, environmental groups say they will take legal action to uh, keep federal protection for the gray wolf. We'll talk about that with Ethan Lane, Executive Director of Federal Lands for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. That's coming up next. Stay with us here on AOA Adams on agriculture.
We are live on the red carpet, waiting for the next generation Creden soybean. There he is. Oh, Ed, look, it's Creden's Liberty Link GT27. I know, Adna. He's got elite genetics. You gotta love his four bushel per acre yield advantage. And he's both Liberty and glyphosate herbicide tolerant. Definitely the year's hottest performer. Ask your Credenz retailer about the new Credenz Liberty Link GT27 soybeans. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, the Fish and Wildlife Service plans to remove the gray wolf from the endangered species list. Farmers and ranchers are happy about this move, but environmental groups, many of them saying they'll take legal action to fight it. Let's talk about this issue, which is a controversial one for many and has been going on for some time. Ethan Lane, Executive Director of Federal Lands for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, joins us. Ethan, thanks for being with us. As I mentioned, uh, I know you're happy, ranchers are happy with this uh, uh, plan to remove the gray wolf from the endangered species list, right? Without question, Mike. This is this is an issue that we've been working on for years now, particularly since a big portion of the, the, the range of the wolf saw a delisting initially back in 2011 during the Obama administration. Uh, that's that core population in the Great Lakes that now is numbering up around 4,000 animals uh, in, in that region. And uh, th- those delistings have been sort of wallowing in court ever since then. Uh, the, the listings stay in place, and because of that, it's been really difficult for our producers on the ground, whether it's in that Great Lakes region or out further west in the Pacific Northwest or in the Rocky, uh, the Northern Rockies, to protect their livestock operations from wolf predation. Uh, what they find quite often is it's much easier to work with the states on those issues to, to manage those populations when you do get an aggressive pack. Interesting, two different perspectives on this. Those in the the environmental groups that do not want uh, the gray wolf uh, taken off the list, they're saying that, uh, you know, they need more protection. But on the other side, you can make a strong case that uh, it worked, and uh, this is really a success that you can point to uh, that the, you know, the, the, the wolf population has been uh, restored. Well, well, that's the baffling thing for us. You know, this is a real success story. This, this is a story of a, a species that was on the brink of extinction and has now recovered to a point where they are, I would argue, robust throughout the country. Uh, and, and, you know, the expansion of their range and predation uh, of livestock is evidence of that. Uh, what, a, what an opportunity for these activist groups that spend so much time and effort in court on the Endangered Species Act uh, to take a win and celebrate the fact that this species is recovered and eligible for delisting. Unfortunately, I think what this kind of bears out is that the reality for a lot of these groups is they have no interest in delisting a species. Uh, their interest is only in adding additional species and creating sort of more of that litigation uh, engine that we, that we see so often driving public policy in this arena. So they, what you're saying is they would see this delisting as a weakening of the Endangered Species Act, uh, which they don't want to see happen because they want to add more to it. That's exactly right. For, for them and, and, you know, some of these groups, the Center for Biological Diversity is a great example. Um, they actually refer to the listing rate quite often. Uh, they look at this as a, as a zero-sum game. How many species can you get on the list? 
And there's, there's no part of that conversation for those groups that deals with recovery and delisting because that's not the objective for them. The objective is simply to get them on the list and get those, get those take restrictions in, in place on the ground. It's a, it's a weapon in a lot of cases. And unfortunately, that's not what was intended, um, but it's certainly how it ends up playing out uh, uh, quite often. Now, wolves were already delisted in several states, right, out west? Yes, that's, that's correct. In Idaho, Montana. A few states like that out west, uh, uh, Wyoming, I believe, right now, they've had some, they're in that same uh, sort of donut hole because of a, uh, an official delisting uh, rule that was finalized and then court orders that overturned that delisting. I believe right now Wyoming is also delisted. So you do have some states where state management is in control. In, Wy- in uh, Oregon and uh, Washington, they actually have split management. Uh, the states are cut down the middle, and you have federally listed wolves on one side and delisted wolves on the other, which even further complicates things. Uh, so, you know, from our perspective, the best way to consolidate all this is to, to get this wolf off the federal list uh, and, and get it back into state hands, regardless of what that state may be, and let the states manage those resources. So that's what this would mean if, if this plan goes through, to take uh, the gray wolf off the endangered species list for these states uh, in the Great Lakes region then, They'll go then uh, to state management. Is that correct? That, that's correct. And, and that's, the, that's the, the normal place they would default to otherwise. The federal government only comes in and, and takes a, a role in managing a species uh, really when it falls into this ESA listing uh, uh, you know, tailspin that we, that we see with the, with the wolf. So the normal course of operations would be for them to step back and allow the state to make decisions for their own populations and state, which in our minds is, is far more appropriate. What are the numbers? Uh, do we have uh, good estimates on the number of wolves in this area? We do. In the Great Lakes region, uh, rapidly approaching about 4,000 individuals. Um, and it's important to note that the, the original recovery target, when the gray wolf was listed in the Great Lakes, was 1,500 wolves. So it, obviously that species has blown past those recovery targets and is, is far past what originally was intended by this listing. Uh, in, in addition, you've seen those populations expand and grow into other areas of the country, as we talked about earlier, in the Pacific Northwest and the Northern Rockies. Um, so I think on the whole, uh, the last estimate I saw put the number at somewhere around 5,500 wolves nationwide right now. Um, and then, of course, you have a, a tremendously large population north of the border in Canada. So there's no, there's no danger for this species. This species is long since recovered. Um, has returned to, to healthy levels, and, and that's sort of the argument we want to continue to push here. This is a scientifically data-driven delisting process. This is something that the Obama administration tried to do in 2013. They were scared off of that by threats of litigation from these from these radical environmental groups. Uh, this administration is less intimidated by that. They're they're a little more willing to sort of step up and say, "Do us if you want to," but we're gonna we're gonna pursue the data-driven path here and make what we think is the best decision. So we're, we're really pleased to see that. We're pleased to see Acting Secretary Bernhardt uh, uh, make, a, make a swift decision like this and just move forward that process. And it's the beginning of a process, Mike. It's not the end. You know, they have to go through a public comment period and finalize this rule, and we will have months of debate on this. But we're fairly confident that the data will, will absolutely show, as it has in the past, that the species is ready to go home. We're talking with Ethan Lane with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Yeah, for those of us not really up you know, well-versed on the Endangered Species Act, uh, it would seem that, I was going to say, was there a goal to hit 
And if you hit that number, it would seem seemingly say, okay, then uh, they ought to come off the list. And if you're saying the goal was to get to 1,500 and you're now at 5,500, uh, it seems pretty clear that it worked and the, the goal has been met and right. this is the right move then. Mission, mission accomplished. That, I mean, that would be the obvious that would be the obvious take that anybody would have looking at the situation, but that's often what we see here is moving goalposts. You know, the, the number's 1,500, you get to 1,500, and then somebody throws a flag and finds some reason why, well, that's not, that's not good enough now. And, you know, th- th- there's always this sort of and-but situation that comes into play, um, and that's often what they use in, in, in court, these, these activist groups in, in the form of, you know, technicality-based or process-based lawsuits that delay the orderly removal of these species from the list. And that's why we have the recovery rates and the delisting rates that are so abysmal under the Endangered Species Act. I mean, you have less than 2% of species that have been listed successfully delisted and, and removed from the, from the endangered species list. That's a failure of this, of this act. And, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that you have a lot of species that are fully recovered languishing on that list. Now, the president of Defenders of Wildlife says the return of the wolf to the northern Rockies and Great Lakes is one of America's greatest conservation successes, but wolves are still absent from much of their historic range where there is suitable habitat. The work of recovering this iconic species is not done, and we will vigorously oppose this action. So what do we make of um, still absent from much of their historic range? Well, you know, the, the, the argument over historic range is one that comes up on a lot of species, and the, the, the fact is, we, we aren't in a situation in 2019 with uh, 350 million people in this country where these species are going to have the same unbroken range they might have had 200 years ago. So when we get into this debate of, of what a range may or may not have looked like for a species when there was no human footprint on the, on the, in the area uh, or a very minimal one, it's just not a, it's not a reasonable comparison. I mean, there's got to be a balance achieved there with uh, the needs of society, the needs of local communities, rural communities to continue to, to, to produce income and, and support families and put food on the table. So uh, we, we kind of retreat back to a reasonable range for a species like this. The, the, the wolves in their current form are, are more than ample in the, in the area that they are covering. Um, and they're traveling freely within that area. And that's why we're seeing incursions in northern California. We're seeing uh, talk about them coming to Colorado soon. Uh, you know, there, there's 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 no there's no need to evaluate this based on a standard that hasn't been relevant for 150 years in order to determine whether or not this species needs to stay on the list. And Ethan, what impact has this growing wolf population had on uh, on ranchers as far as deaths and injuries of livestock? It's 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 unbelievably high, Mike. It's it's something that we hear about more than any other issue in the species arena. Uh, when, when you're under the gun, if your operation is, is in an area with high wolf activity, if you're around packs that are becoming more aggressive, which is often what we see, um, it, it's all consuming for the producer on the ground. Uh, if you go into the Pacific Northwest with some of these packs that are sort of unmanaged at this point because of that split management structure, you're looking at dozens of predations per county uh, right now on an annual basis. So that means that means individual ranchers that are losing 10, 15, 20 heads at a time, um, and and those types of predations when you get into the Great Lakes region in that area with the elevated population they have there, unfortunately, uh, the, the folks in in that part of the world have have almost grown accustomed to it, which is really unfortunate. 
Ethan, thank you for the update. I'm sure we're going to be talking more about this. Uh, Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Ethan Lane, Executive Director of Federal Lands for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. All right, we're going to switch to sorghum coming up next here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Stay with us. Powerful, effective, proven, tough, consistent, reliable. A lot of adjectives can describe a herbicide's weed control, but one only applies to Liberty Herbicide. Superior. Liberty Herbicide has no known resistance in row crops, more convenient application flexibility, and excellent control of key weeds, all backed by the Liberty Weed Control Guarantee. Learn more at liberty.basf.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, of course, big week last week, a commodity classic classic for corn growers, soybean growers, wheat growers, and sorghum growers. Uh, We've uh, talked to all those groups except the National Sorghum uh, Producers. So let's uh, bring in Tim Luss, CEO of National Sorghum Producers. Tim, thanks for joining us. Uh, Let me just take a wild guess here. Trade, one of those top issues uh, for your growers too, right? Absolutely. It was kind of trade, trade, and trade were the three talking points. Yeah, when we talk, uh, well, let's talk USMCA, because I know all the groups came out uh, in strong support of of getting USMCA passed. From a sorghum perspective, uh, why is this so important? Well, it's been a good good agreement for us. Uh, You know, Spain, uh, Mexico is normally our second largest customer, and um, so certainly makes a lot of sense to South Texas sorghum moves straight across by truck, and it's kind of a a natural home market. So just a lot of positives for us and one that just makes a lot of sense to support. Are you being impacted now with the tariffs uh, on steel and aluminum and retaliation? Has that slowed any of your trade down at all? It really hasn't, uh, and certainly know it's affected other commodities, but it really hasn't uh, with us. But the risk would be if we get into this, as we get into USMCA and trying to get it passed, uh, if if it doesn't pass, if, uh, you know, the president would happen to pull us out of NAFTA, uh, certainly there's a lot on the line here. Absolutely. Then we would go back to very significant tariffs, and uh, it would be something that, frankly, our industry has never experienced because we've never really had a tariff with Mexico. So. So it could be a very bad situation if if this doesn't get done. And certainly, no, it's a a challenge to get any trade agreement done and get it ratified. But uh, uh, we'll be focused on helping do that while obviously at the same time really focusing on China and the situation there as well. I was going to say, let's talk about China and its importance as a market for sorghum growers. Well, I'm happy to tell you for the first time in a long time uh, that uh, can announce this morning that China bought 65,000 metric tons. There are about 2.6 million bushels of sorghum that was reported in the export data this morning. Um, obviously, the first time uh, since all of the challenges of 2018, so we're very excited about that news this morning. Certainly know that the ongoing negotiations, uh, you know, we've got to get a final agreement and certainly understand all of that, but it's also a very positive sign to see uh, them actually make some sorghum purchases. 
Yeah, that's some good news. So what kind of market was China for U.S. sorghum before the, the tariff situation, and what do you see as the potential moving forward? You know, they were averaging over the last five years about $1.2 billion in sales. They had uh, gotten to the point where they were buying almost half of the U.S. crop. And, um, you know, they were our dominant export buyer. And so certainly a very significant market. Um, you know, one of the other positive things this morning was is Spain announced another purchase of 2.2 million bushels. And certainly with some of the dry conditions in Europe, We've seen Spain be and Europe uh, be strong buyers, but uh, China is the one that's always set the tone uh, the last five, six years for our industry. And so that's why it's so significant and uh, why it's a big deal today. Also significant in that uh, hopefully it's going, that market opens up uh, to ethanol exports and ethanol products uh, going into China. That certainly has an impact for sorghum growers as well. Absolutely. The domestic ethanol industry has taken up all the slack this year and, and uh, just been our top customer by, by a long ways. And uh, certainly we understand and know margins are tough there. And we're excited about ethanol being a part of a China agreement. It needs to be and uh, certainly looks like it will be. Uh, and so we're very excited about that and, and what uh, that can mean here uh, in terms of value-added opportunities back home to use our product as well. Talking with Tim Luss, CEO of National Sorghum Producers. Tim, other than trade, what are the other priorities that uh, uh, your growers have set for this coming year? Certainly farm bill implementation is one of those items that, uh, while this this uh, farm bill wasn't revolutionary, um, you know, there's still some key aspects and some key changes in different components of the farm bill, whether that's Title I and the way they handle some of these yield update items and and moving from NAS data to RMA data, or whether it's in some of the conservation title and some of the changes made in the conservation title, there's there's some implementation decisions that will certainly matter to our industry. So we will remain very actively involved there in working through those areas. Uh, you know, we continue a long process of working with EPA. Uh, it's the year of re-registration for several key products, including atrazine and uh you know, that's an important product, number one product for us, and so certainly continue to be involved with EPA, um, you know, certainly working with USDA on uh, biotech regulations that kind of gotten slowed down in the past, but it looks like they're coming back through the system, and uh, from a gene editing standpoint, there's some very positive opportunities for sorghum and just working to make sure those regulations are done in a way that uh, is good for all of agriculture, frankly, and uh so, you know, those are some of the highlights of, of what we will be doing. Certainly there's the, the business side of the organization as well. And, uh, you know, about this time a year ago, we were about to embark on a strategic planning process. And uh, um, that kind of got uh, countervailing duties and anti-dumping cases a year ago, uh, kind of shut all that down for a while. But we've been uh, working through that with our board of directors and uh, just, just working to get a new uh, strategic plan uh, kind of lined out for our goals and priorities for the next five years as well. All right. So, again, like about everyone we talk to in agriculture, as we look ahead to this year, uh, we, we're, we're kind of just waiting to see what happens on these trade issues, aren't we? It, it really is. That is, that's really the story. Um, you know, we know from a 
farm income standpoint that that's the largest factor that can change and help farm income and in the situation where we're in with the with the stocks and supplies that we have certainly i think it makes a lot of sense uh, both short term and long term to be our priority tim thanks for the update good to talk with you thank you take care tim luss ceo of the national sorghum producers well that wraps it up for today tomorrow we're going to focus more on some of these clean water issues hope you'll join us right here on aoa adams on agriculture have a great day everyone